welcome to the Interventions podcast. I'm Tom Pai. And I'm Shiru Lim. And today we're speaking to Professor John Robertson. Hello, John. Hello. Hello, Tom. Shiru. John Robertson is Professor of the History of Political Thought and the Faculty of History, Cambridge. His interests encompass political, social and historical thought across the 17th and 18th centuries. His books include The Case for Enlightenment, Scotland and Naples, 1680 to 1760. In 2016, he gave the Carlyle Lectures at Oxford on The Sacred and the Social, History and Political Thought, 1650 to 1800, which we will be talking about later. Thank you very much for coming to speak to us, John. My pleasure. So um, your PhD was on debates in 18th century Scotland over the militia, which you completed under, under the supervision of Future Europa, and which, as I understand it, was an engagement in some of John Pocock's work, particularly the Machiavellian moment. Could you talk a bit about that and then how it fed into the later interest in Anglo-Scottish Union? Yes, there's quite a lot I could say about the the militia question. When I started, when I first thought about doctoral research, I thought of doing something on the Weber question in and 18th century Scotland. So something that would be both intellectual and social. And Hugh Trevor Roper was appointed to supervise that. And I was very fortunate to have him as a supervisor. He was very wide ranging. Uh, he had a strong interest in the Enlightenment and the Scots. And he Directed, there was a certain distance to his style. I remember him telling me to, to read Montesquieu and explaining why Montesquieu mattered. Uh, but he was very, very good in many ways, and, and especially once one started, once I started writing. I came to the militia question in search of a subject, as all, all doctoral students are. But I think there probably it was the writings of John Pocock, Particularly, it's the early essays in Politics, Language and Time, because they preceded the Machiavellian moment, which obviously pointed to the importance of the, of the armed citizen and that tradition. And there were these debates in 18th century, in the 1750s, 1760s, right through to the 1770s in Scotland about whether they should reconstitute a militia. And I wanted to pick up both the agitation for a militia and the intellectual dimension of it. So that was the that was the, the historiographical context, as it were. There was a more general context in terms of two things really an interest in intellectual history which wasn't all that strong in Oxford at the time. It was certainly I took a special subject as an undergraduate in the scientific movement in the seventeenth century. And Hugh Trevor Roper represented a style of intellectual history which he'd developed, particularly in the 1960s, so in the 10 years or so before, 15 years before he began supervising me. But there's no doubt that the Cambridge School, as it quickly became known, also had an impact because we read the articles of Skinner and of John Donne and of John Pocock in Oxford in the early 1970s, and that was something very very exciting and novel in the Oxford context, where political thought hadn't caught up with that as it was taught to undergraduates. So that also fed in. And there was also a more personal background. I read a lot of 
Althusser and, and Foucault, particularly the order of things, Les Mots et les Choses, uh, as an undergraduate, and that had quite a strong, quite a strong impact in the sense that I, what I found congenial about Althusser was its its consistent anti-reductionism, its refusal to reduce. So ideas and thought had its own sphere, and Althusser read texts interestingly. I've been reminded of this actually just this year by supervising an MPhil student on Althusser. Althusser had a very direct way of reading texts. He did not read them for hidden messages or anything below the surface. He read the text and that also had that in a strange way combined with the Cambridge School to direct the way that I read texts uh, even as a doctoral student I think. After the thesis, you moved on, I think, towards the, the end of the 80s and into the 90s on to questions about Anglo-Scottish Union that took you back, in a sense, to where the thesis began, which is with Andrew Fletcher. Well, first of all, could you talk a bit about that? And did you think that the Anglo-Scottish Union <laughs> so soon in your life would become <laughs> so urgently debated again? Uh, well, there are there are two things there, I think. I mean, one is the interest of Andrew Fletcher, which which Pocock alerted me to. Also, Nicholas Philipson, who just died tragically recently. They were both interested in Fletcher, and Fletcher is a very interesting, very sharp thinker, a very contrary man. He was very interesting. He was, one had to go back to Fletcher for the militia, uh, and again, with the Union, you certainly, Fletcher is central to that. But... I think perhaps your political memory is a bit short, <laughs> uh, because after all, I finished the thesis uh, around the time of the first devolution debate, mm. and that had quite a strong, I think that probably did have quite an, a shaping influence on, on the way I framed the thesis, because the first devolution debate was characterized by a lot of noise uh, on the Scottish part, and then just a kind of failure of nerve, a failure to see it through, too easily fobbed off with promises. And I certainly, as I finished my thesis on the militia debates, I read that into the militia debates. A lot of noise, but clearly no serious intention to push through and establish a Scottish militia. The, great, the advocates of it wanted it as a kind of totem, but they didn't really want uh, that kind of conscription in Scotland. So uh, that was in some ways an engagement, in my mind, not in the more general public mind, in my mind, with the that devolution debate. But after that union, the Scots realised they'd have to try harder and push it through, as it were. And so devolution, in particular devolution, remained an issue in Scotland and grew as an issue, and the whole debate extended and deepened in the 80s and 90s. So... Union was certainly on the agenda, and the opportunity to pick it up and develop it really arose through John Pocock's uh, Folger Institute programme on British, the history of British political thought. And I think between us, Roger Mason in St Andrews, who works on the, the first Union debate of 1603, and I persuaded John Pocock that... Uh, seminars on these union debates would be an important part of the history of British political thought 
project at the Falls Church. So that's where uh, the volume on the union originated in, in a series of seminars with people that I invited to speak to them on aspects of the union. And I developed that. I mean, it, the main point about that was the union in its European context, because it was very clear, uh, as it's still very clear, that the Scottish devolution or independence question depends upon the European context. The reason the Scots were able to pursue devolution and then able to pursue what they called independence was simply that Europe offered them a framework for their relationship with England. And Scotland has to have a framework for a relationship with England. And hence, this is a political point, but, but now the weakness of the independence position. They're caught by Brexit. This is going in the direction that we, we kind of wanted to go in. Um, and your, your response to Tom already brought somewhat hinted at this. I was going to say that talking to you about Scotland will inevitably bring us to talking about your, your book, The Case for Enlightenment, Scotland and Naples, uh, 1680 to 1760. Could you say something about the path your interest took from the Union of 1707 to the Scottish Enlightenment and then maybe from the Scottish to the Neapolitan Enlightenment? Why, why Naples is one of my questions. There wasn't, there wasn't a, a single linear path because... I got to the Union from working on Andrew Fletcher in the early stages of the militia debates. And Naples had long been an interest of mine from quite an early stage in doctoral research. I'd, I'd had the idea that Naples would be an interesting uh, intellectual context to move on to and perhaps compare with the Scots. And there were a number of reasons for that. One is that a doctoral student, at least if you want to move on, you need some sense of, in fact, as a scholar all your life, you need some sense of what is the next project in order to finish the present one. Uh, so Naples was there for a long time as the project I wanted to move on to. But why? There were a number of things. One, uh, Hugh Trevoropa's interest in, in Giannone, the Neapolitan historian, that he piqued my interest in Giannone. So also Momigliano. There's an article by Momigliano on Gibbon where he says, well, Edinburgh, uh, Lausanne, and Naples were particularly interesting places from which to think about the problem of feudalism. And that struck me as very, very interesting. Uh, a final factor was visiting Naples and the south of Italy in the late 1970s with my wife and my brother. And we had a long, a long trip with quite a lot of just travelling between places, really Norman Douglas's old Calabria was the, was the Vade Mecum for that trip. And it was extremely interesting. On the one hand, a very different landscape, because at that time the south in late summer was a lunar landscape, really. It was bleached dry. A later trip showed what the funding of the European Union can do and what, what money to irrigate can do. It's much greener now. Then it was just bleach dry. But what was interesting about it was this is another landscape which was populated by humans, which humans have left, rather like large parts of Scotland, or at least the Scottish Highlands. It's a very human landscape. So that kind of that sense of there were similar problems here, uh, problems of provincial dependence and the desire to escape that, which marked the 18th century intellectual effort in both places. So that's really... The connection between the Scottish Enlightenment and the Neapolitan Enlightenment, this sense of being backward, being in a, in a technical, conceptual sense, provincial, they used that term, and realising that they needed to 
develop, to move forward. That was the intellectual problem, but there was that background in Giannone and, and also in travel which got me there. Um, I wanted to ask you about the book that I guess came out of the case book, the book on Scotland and Naples, which is the very short introduction to Enlightenment you published quite recently, I think last year. And I wanted to ask you whether having to write such a condensed book on Enlightenment forced you into thinking a bit more broadly about the contemporary field of Enlightenment studies, if you can, if you can call it that. And in kind of mugging up on all of the contemporary stuff going on, whether you found anything or anyone to be doing particularly interesting work on the Enlightenment. So I'm thinking of people like Dan Edelstein and who kind of emerged from doing this book as, as, as someone that mm. was doing particularly interesting uh, stuff. Yes, I think, I think a very short introduction was, I think it was even 2015 or <laughs> 2016. Again, the um, memory is bad. <laughs> yes, these things, I mean, yeah. they become older than one wants them to be. But can I go back to that dimension of the case for the Enlightenment, not simply the Scotland-Naples comparison, but the argument for... It was an argument at the time for the Enlightenment, for a unitary Enlightenment, but it was an argument that was picked up in the 1990s. Really, historians of Enlightenment had both expanded the subject in the 1980s academically. There was a lot of work on Enlightenment, but at the same time felt under threat and challenge, really, from largely from postmodernism, with its broad attack on Enlightenment universalism. And the tendency had been to, to argue for plural enlightenments as a kind of defensive posture in the face of that critique. Well, in the 1990s, though, enlightenment clearly began to recover its status. And I think the reason for that was pretty clear. It was post-89 it was a substitute for a kind of liberal left substitute for Marxism. Enlightenment equated with the better aspects of modernity. And that case really uh, was expressed, was being expressed strongly by the late 1990s, Robert Danton's article um, on uh, George Washington's false teeth as, as an emblem of progress in the 18th century, which later actually he called the case for the Enlightenment. So we shared that title. Obviously, Jonathan Israel's massive works, that was their context. But another, and in some ways, the most interesting product of it was Barbara Taylor's project on gender and enlightenment and, and the argument that there was an important place for women and discussion of women's position in enlightenment. So there were a number of initiatives at the time, and the case for the enlightenment was really part of that, that movement of, of restoring the standing of enlightenment. Uh, the way I put it was through political economy. It was the, in the Scottish and Neapolitan case, the desire to make the human condition better, and in both cases they felt we have to catch up on the advanced economies of Northern Europe, England in the Scottish case, England, France, the Netherlands in the Neapolitan case. So I put that case quite strongly in, in terms of political economy, also historical thinking. And if I'd gone on to develop the Scottish and Neapolitan comparison, I think it would have been in terms of, well, there were two themes really of the later Enlightenment. One is the response to Rousseau, which is universal but strong in both Scotland and especially in Naples. And the other 
which one of my interlocutors, Tom Pye, is pursuing, would have been the history of feudalism, because that is also central to both the Scottish and the Neapolitan Enlightenments. But for various reasons, I decided not to write, as it were, a second volume of that. I just didn't think, you make the point about a comparison, to try to write a second volume would seem to make that comparison definitive in some way, and I, I don't think it was. I think it was suggestive, not definitive. But I was asked, I'd been asked before, and I knew there'd been a couple of false starts at the very short introduction to the Enlightenment, so I accepted that, and it was difficult. A short book like that is difficult to write. It took me longer than I expected, but I did want to get some distance between the case for the Enlightenment, the book, and the very short introduction, and rethink the way I was looking at Enlightenment to some extent. So it simply didn't repeat and just extend, as it were, geographically the argument of the case for the Enlightenment. And a number of things were important there. Yes, other, other interpretations of which Dan Edelstein's is indeed, I think, the best. I think it's a very interesting, very suggestive account. Back to France, using the ancients and moderns debate as a way of suggesting how the philosophes defined themselves and thought about their own project historically. It was a very clever and actually substantial book and brave in a way in putting France back at the centre, but I think right in doing that. So that certainly had an influence, but the greater discovery and shift of direction, I think, was running an MPhil class here in Cambridge, a concepts class on historians and philosophers' concepts of enlightenment, and realising I ran it in the first year with Chris Brooke and thereafter on my own for a number of years, but realising that where I had thought that the philosophers' critiques of enlightenment were parasitic on the historian's enlightenment, the, the enlightenment that the historians had reconstructed from the evidence, working with the class clearly showed that, if anything, the opposite was the truth. Historians were Johnny-come-lately, really, to enlightenment studies. The enlightenment had been a philosopher's concept uh, through the 19th century and into the 20th century, and it was largely a critical concept. And it was associated with the critique of modernity, a sense that, the, yes, there is something we can call modernity, which includes economic development, technology, uh, certain ways of thinking, uh, and these are compromised by the disasters of the 20th century, the horrors of the 20th century. That's the critique. And the historians had responded to that, and responded to that at first, I think, in uh, relatively good faith after the war, when historians really, for the first time, historians like Franco Venturi, also Hugh Trevoropa, picked up the Enlightenment as Europe's better past and researched it and thought about it, thought generally in terms of one Enlightenment radiating out of France. Venturi thought of the Italian Enlightenment as, as closely connected to the French, not a separate Enlightenment. And that idea of Enlightenment was connected, I think, to a broad concept of modernization. There was modernization theory was in there. So they didn't directly reply to the critique of modernity. They replied in their own terms using modernization. What I came to think was that the second, if you like, the second major wave of pro-Enlightenment writing in the 1990s by the historians had 
accepted the idea of modernity and celebrated modernity rather too easily. The way in which Jonathan Israel approached it and any criticism of Israel has to be not just tempered but prefaced by respect for the extraordinary industry and breadth of imagination and conception that he shows in those volumes. But he did have a pretty simple and celebratory view of modernity, which he wanted to defend for whatever reason. And I came to think that was, and the Enfield class helped me to see, that was pretty simplified. It was facile on the part of the historians. So what I tried to do in that very short introduction was set off the historians and the philosophers' accounts of enlightenment. I'm a historian, so that very short introduction is the enlightenment as a historical phenomenon. But in introducing and concluding it, I tried to bring out that continuing discussion and show that the philosopher's case is important and has not been answered by historians celebrating and indeed shouting about modernity. Indeed, that they've been talking past each other and need to... (laughs) Well, they've certainly been talking past each other. Uh, There's a limit to which disciplines can enter directly into dialogue because disciplinary frameworks supervene. They're doing different things. But I think the historians might recognise that the philosophers had a point and that historians need to think historically about that philosophic tradition and interrogate it. It's primarily a German tradition. The strength of the tradition is is German. Uh, Through Adorno and Horkheimer, through Koselleck, through Habermas, it's not by any means an easy tradition, and I am not a scholar of of 20th century German philosophy, but you need that in order to get at that and get at what they they were trying to say. Um, just a quick follow-up on what you just said. Um, I took your I took your conclusion to the very short introduction also to be um, a cautionary injunction against those who might be too eager to claim that the Enlightenment still matters today. Steven Pinker, for instance, just published a book called Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism and Progress. Could you maybe say something about how Enlightenment scholars, historians perhaps, might respond to this compulsion to make enlightenment speak to us now? I wonder if that moment hasn't passed. Uh, It was Jonathan Israel's moment, was Anthony Pagden's moment, though I think it's fair to say that by that time, uh, Why the Enlightenment Still Matters was a publisher's addendum to Anthony Pagden's title, or at least a suggestion. I wonder if the political debate hasn't moved on to some extent. Uh, But I certainly think, and and yes, the very short introduction was a relatively quiet statement of caution about strong and simple statements about enlightenment. Because as soon as you get to, for example, to the idea of reason was something to do with, was, was a particular enlightenment category, well, yes and no many of the Enlightenment philosophers were sceptics. They didn't believe in the power of, the overriding power of human reason. Reason is a Christian category, a central category to the Christian tradition of thinking about the human condition. Reason is the, is the quality that God gave to man to distinguish men. Uh, and that, in, that indeed goes back to the Greeks as well. So that kind of emphasis strikes me as really not what we should be trying to do. 
as historians. Rather, what we can do is suggest perspective and look at the way languages were used in the past and look at the way those languages tackled problems that we can recognize in our own terms, but tackled them in particular ways and sometimes got further with those problems in their own terms. So what historians do is look at the way that humans have thought and thought hard in the past. I mean, what we certainly do as intellectual historians is pay tribute to hard thought. Humans have believed that hard thought was a good thing, it's a value, and we should try to do it. And historians should respect that, explore that, and show how thinkers in the past approached the problems of their time, problems that may have resemblances to our problems. Could you tell us more about the origins of your current research project? How do you get from, from Enlightenment to sacred history? I think... I've asked myself that question. I think the answer is, again, there are, there are, there's more than one uh, connecting thread. One of them is certainly the Neapolitans, Vico, and also Pietro Giannone, the, the historian. I always wanted to work on Giannone, as I've said, ever since Trevoropa drew attention to his interest. And when I wrote the case for the Enlightenment, I found, in fact, that I was working on Vico. And Vico is truly fascinating. So I've wanted to go back to Giannone and at the same time to do more work on Vico. And I realized that for both of them, sacred history is a very important dimension of their thinking. So the Neapolitan context and why Neapolitans, they weren't alone, were so interested in this topic was one route in. But another was the recent rise of scholarship in sacred history as it was understood in the 17th century. So this is what we call here the history of scholarship, and there are a number of very notable exponents of that in Cambridge, Scott Mandelbrot, Richard Sargentson, and then a younger generation working, working on it. So I picked up that interest, reading Richard Simon, also working in the archives of the Index in Rome, and picking up cases where Neapolitans were being pursued or at least reported on to the index for engaging in this kind of scholarship. So I realized that this interest in sacred history, there was a, an opportunity there, but also a need to bring this kind of late 17th century interest in sacred history into political thought, because it was clearly one of those cutting edges of scholarship. That's what people were interested in at the time. It was exciting. It was interesting. You could get something out of it. So that's where I went into it. And at least in giving the Carlyles and in the book that I want to develop out of that, I really have two threads, two arcs, really. And one runs from Hobbes and Spinoza to Giannone, those who used and thought about the history of the what, what Christians call the Old Testament as a way of thinking about early society. And the second arc... Uh, runs from Vico forwards through Boulanger, who probably did not read Vico, to the very interesting, underestimated, late Neapolitan Enlightenment thinker, uh, Francesco Mario Pagano. So there's a second arc of interest there in the importance of early religion, uh, of religion to the formation of early societies. Interesting there that Giannone is often taken to be the radical. I mean, he was the heterodox thinker, the forward-looking thinker, in much Enlightenment historiography, Giannone is, is the figure of the Enlightenment. In this pair of arcs, actually it's Vico's inquiry which is the one that will be picked up 
in the later 18th century. So that's the, that's the story I want to fulfill. It's not directly an intervention in debate about enlightenment. Thinking about it is part of enlightenment, so it should contribute to a better understanding of how enlightenment thinkers engaged with religion. And I think the engagement with religion is as important as the critique. But it's a longer story than that, and it takes, takes me back again into the 17th century, and particularly to Spinoza, who's really interesting in this context. So completing the Carlyles as a book will be the first priority, and I want to keep the lecture format. My model there is very much Annabel Brett's Carlyle Lectures, Changes of State, which I think is a wonderful transposition of an excellent set of lectures into a book. But I have other projects too. One is that I'm organizing a conference on political thought, time and history, and I will want to edit those proceedings and also introduce them. And, and it's a theme that interests me, so I hope I can uh, develop that. I've written a piece on John Pocock, who's, to which that theme is central. And one other project is to edit a volume out of our paper six in part two of the Tripos on states between states, international political thought. And I'd like to bring all the colleagues, really, who contributed to that together to write a volume of essays, not a handbook, but a volume of essays from a course which has been extraordinarily interesting to prepare and give, and uh, also very interesting to listen to my colleagues' lectures, and I think a very innovative course. The credit for that goes mainly to Annabelle Brett, but we have all contributed and enjoyed it, and I'd like to do a volume out of that. And then beyond that, uh, I will certainly keep thinking of projects. <laughs> Great. Well, I can't wait to see the fruits of your retirement labour. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for another episode of Interventions, the Intellectual History Podcast. 